Hello and welcome to another episode of the Dongfang Hour China Space News Roundup. This for the week of the 18th to 24th of October, 2021. I'm Blaine Curcio, joined as always by my co-host Jean Deville. Before getting into this week's news updates, a special shout out to our good friends at SpaceWatch.Global and GoTikonauts, two excellent sources of space industry news. This week, we bring you updates on a hypersonic glide missile test, updates from the China Space Exploration Forum. But first, Jean will unpack a test of the largest solid rocket engine in the world at the moment. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dongfang Hour. Please make sure your seatbelt is securely fastened. So, John, solid rocket engines. What's going on over in Xi'an? So, on Tuesday, October the nineteenth, Casks Fourth Academy (AASPT), the Aerospace Academy of Solid Propulsion Technology, they tested a three point five meter diameter, five hundred ton thrust solid fueled rocket engine in their test facilities of Bailuyuan in Xi'an, and this test run lasted a total of a hundred and fifteen. Seconds. Now, there are two things that make this piece of news absolutely noteworthy. The first one is just the sheer size and the power of this solid rocket booster. It has a diameter of 3.5 meters and 500 tons of thrust, as mentioned, and this makes it the most powerful solid-fueled engine ever tested by China. Especially as this one is a single cast, a monolithic SRB, meaning that it's not multiple solid-fueled segments that were put together, but rather it was just. One one single cast engine, basically. It's worth noting that CCTV, so the Chinese television, noted that this was the largest solid rocket booster worldwide, which is true to a certain extent. If you restrict that definition to you know solid rocket boosters that are currently in service and only to um, you know to monolithic SRBs, but otherwise, if you take away those restrictions, actually historically you have the Aerojet AJ260 from the 1960s, which had a total thrust, I believe, of 1,800 tons, and you also have Have currently, more recently, the SLS that has SRBs that are able to produce 1,600 tons of thrust apiece. The other really interesting point about this piece of news is it sort of highlights China's ambition in solid field propulsion in recent years. Because we all know that solid field rockets have the advantage of being able to produce a high amount of thrust, presenting less complexity and requiring less launch preparation. But you know, when you look back at China's main rocket family, the Long March rockets, almost none except the Long March 11. Are solid fuel. They all use various liquid oxidizer and propellant combos. You have UDMH and nitrogen tetroxide for the older generation Long March rockets, and you have Hydrolox and Carolox engines for the、uh, more recent Long March Five to Long March Eight rockets. And this really incorporating some solid fueled engines is a major shift for China's rocket design. Now, if we cover really briefly the history, the origins of China's efforts to develop civil solid-fuel launch vehicles, and、I、insist on the civil word here because China has a much longer history in developing solid-fuel rocket engines for、uh, military applications. So we probably need to go back to China's 11th five-year plan. So we're in the late 2000s, and at the time in 2009. AASPT first developed and tested a two-meter diameter, 120-ton thrust solid-fuel engine, which was later derived into the engine of the Long March 
Airplane, and this was the first solid field Long March rocket ever, which performed its maiden flight in 2015. And then in 2019, China developed a larger uh, solid rocket engine, the 2.6 meter diameter, 200 ton thrust, single cast solid field engine. And just one year later in 2020, ASPT performed a 130 second test run of an even bigger engine at 3.2 meters of diameter and 260 tons of thrust. And this was a three segment solid field engine. And so this latest test we have of a 500 ton thrust engine a couple of days ago, this can be seen as sort of in the continuity of this decade long R&D effort to have larger and larger um, solid field rocket engines for China's civil launch uh, vehicles. Now, last point worth noting, despite 500 tons of thrust representing an unprecedented amount of thrust for Chinese SRBs, AASPT also mentioned over the past week that they plan to go even further than that and design a five-segment 1,000-ton thrust solid rocket engine. And this is according to the Academy Director Ren Chuenbin in an interview that was given to CCTV. Alongside all this uh, news on solid field rocket engines, there's really the question of which rockets will actually be using these engines. And I think this is, a, this is a very good question. On this topic, we know that the 120-ton thrust Chinese SRB that I mentioned earlier, this one may be used as side boosters for the future Long March 6A, which is uh, the only Long March rocket to combine solid and liquid propulsion. And this rocket has not flown yet. It should have its maiden launch in the coming months. And we also learned this week that the 200 ton and the 500 ton thrust engines are to equip the future Jelong 3 and Jelong 3A rockets manufactured by a commercial spinoff of the Chinese Academy of Launch Technology called China rocket. And I think perhaps the only remaining area of uncertainty here is who will be using that 1,000 ton thrust engine that was mentioned by Ren Chen Bing on a CCTV interview. And there have been some Chinese articles that have been hinting at this engine being used for deep space exploration, but I feel that that also muddles the water a little bit as well, because when we talk about deep space exploration in China, we usually think of the Long March 5DY and the Long March 9, which are rockets that are currently under development and that should be using Kerlox and Hydrolox engines. So there's no space for any SRBs unless there's a shift in engine, uh, you know, in the architecture of the rocket. And that is something that uh, we are not aware of at the moment. So um that's a lot of speculation, and I'm probably going to hand things over to Blaine for the next update before I go too deep into um, wild speculation. Although I do note that I think, Blaine, your next piece of news is also linked to a lot of speculation. I, I was going to say, on, on a, yeah, on the topic of wildly speculative, yeah, what a, uh, what a piece of news indeed. So this week we saw a couple of articles published by the Financial Times regarding a hypersonic glide vehicle test conducted by China allegedly uh, just a couple of months ago. So the first article published by the FT was published on Saturday and it alleged that China had launched a nuclear capable hypersonic missile on an around the world trajectory back in August without specifying a date. The report, which cited five unnamed sources, claimed that China had a rocket and launched a rocket that carried a hypersonic glide vehicle that circled, quote, circled the globe before speeding towards its target, demonstrating an advanced space capability that caught the U.S. intelligence by surprise, end quote. 
And so before digging more into this article, I do think it's important to clarify the ambiguity surrounding this event. So again, the original FT article did not refer to any specific date. And then the second article released by the FT this past week described two tests, one of which they had said was on the 27th of July, and the second one was on the 13th of August. And I would also mention there was a pretty good deep dive report published by the China Aerospace Studies Institute over in the US about that 13th of August launch. So for those who are interested in more information, we will link to that in the show notes. And following these uh, publications from the FT and, and just to kind of um, a complete picture on this ambiguity, uh, the Chinese response did mention that they had completed a test, which we'll talk about more in just a moment. Uh, but the Chinese uh, test that they had said they had done was on the 16th of July. So we have three dates, basically, the 13th of July and the 27th of August being the two that the FT noted, and the 16th of July, which is what, uh, what China noted. So again, a lot of unknowns, a lot of ambiguity around this story. Uh, that being said, there are some things that we do know, or at least that we can be fairly certain of. Um, so according to the FD, what we do know is that China did launch a rocket carrying what is called a Fractional Orbital Bombardment System, or a FOBS, uh, which itself carried a nuclear-capable hypersonic glide vehicle. And so these two technologies, FOBS and hypersonic glide vehicles, are both meant to evade missile defenses, and they both have a rather sort of strategic implication uh, for the U.S. And, and for the West more generally. I would also point out that according to the FT article, a, there's one other unnamed technology that a source said, quote, appears to defy the laws of physics. So we don't really know what that technology is. We heard a lot of speculation about you know, defying the laws of physics. Uh, but in general, it does seem like the two rather more well understood technologies that are being deployed here are, as I mentioned, FOBs and hypersonic glide vehicles. Uh, and so there was an excellent webinar by the Foreign Policy Research Institute that provided a really thorough analysis of this uh, this missile test. There was a Dr. Laura Grego of the MIT who noted that, quote, with the information reported, nothing appears to be revolutionary and the technologies described are decades old. Uh, and I would note that Dr. Grego was also very, very, very skeptical of the idea that the test had defied the laws of physics. And so to dig a little bit more into these two specific technologies, FOBs and hypersonic glide, just to better understand why is it strategically important. So the first technology is FOBs. And so again, fractional orbital bombardment system was initially conceptualized by the Soviets during the Cold War. And the idea was that rather than using an intercontinental ballistic missile or ICBM to deliver warheads, uh, one could use a FOBs. And so FOBs are different from traditional ICBMs in a number of different ways. So traditional ICBMs are launched in a very high arc going up to an altitude of a um, thousand kilometers sometimes or more, where they travel through space towards their target, never reaching orbital velocity. And the trip of an ICBM would tend to take some tens of minutes with nearly all of this trip being done in the vacuum of space. Now, because ICBMs use most of their fuel to get up into space, they are basically then just kind of coasting as they go through space. And this makes their path relatively predictable and it makes them relatively easier to track and, and to defend against, as it were. Um, and so FOBs, on the other hand, uh, again, they, they fly quite a bit lower than ICBMs, so something like 150 kilometers as opposed to 1,000 kilometers, and they do reach orbital velocity. Now, this has a couple of different implications. Now, by flying lower than an ICBM, a FOB is a lot more difficult to spot in terms of a missile defense system. But I think the other point that's probably more pertinent is the fact that by reaching orbital velocity and by basically getting into orbit, um, these FOBs have nearly unlimited range because they can basically just continue orbiting until you uh, direct it to go back into the atmosphere, at which time um, 
it goes back into the atmosphere, as it were. Um, last point I would mention in terms of the sort of the fobs and, and the orbital element of that. Um, so there was an interesting point brought up on a webinar from an international law perspective, this idea that the Outer Space Treaty prohibits nations from stationing any nuclear weapons in space. But because a FOBS, the, the fractional element of a FOBS, it indicates that it does not do a complete orbit around the Earth. And so by not doing a complete orbit, uh, apparently there's an international law argument that you have not stationed the nuclear weapon in space, but rather you've just you know sent it through space momentarily. So uh, again, not being an international lawyer and, and not knowing a whole lot about the legal aspects of intercontinental ballistic missiles or FOBs, I can't say for sure, but it does appear that the fractional element of that may have some relevance from an international law perspective. So the second technology that these tests were allegedly using were hypersonic glide, or was hypersonic glide uh, technology, which, among other things, allows missiles to maneuver, which makes them harder to track. And so hypersonic missiles travel at more than five times the speed of sound, or you know about 4,000 miles per hour, um, and they would tend to use the atmosphere to maneuver, which basically they use, um, they use lift, they use aerodynamic forces to make the missile less easy to track and to make it more unpredictable. And so when we look at these two technologies, FOBs and, uh, and hypersonic glide technology, they are both aimed at uh, at partly uh, neutralizing U.S. missile defenses and sort of Western missile defenses more generally. And I think another point worth mentioning is that the current Western missile defense systems are pretty much optimized for ICBMs and with the understanding that ICBMs are going to be coming towards you know the west over the, the North Pole because that is the shortest route for ICBMs. And so by having this totally different technology, um, it it certainly is is it throws off the US and the Western missile defense system uh, just a little bit. Um, so to dig a little bit more into who was actually developing this weapon and, and sort of what who were the actor who may have been the actors that were behind this. Um, so according to an Asian national security official who was quoted in the Financial Times article, uh, as well as according to a Chinese security expert with close ties to the PLA, the weapon in question was being developed by the China Academy of Aerospace Aerodynamics, also known as the 11th Institute of CASC. The FT article also pointed out the fact that CALTS had launched their 77th Long March C on the 19th of July and their 79th Long March C on the 24th of August without a 78th happening in between. And notably, CALTS does not, uh, CALTS does consider such missile launches as a launch of a Long March 2C, but it would not be recorded in the kind of higher level cask uh, launch manifest. So it does appear that there would have been a, you know, that, that CALT's own records indicate a launch which would have occurred sometime between the 19th of July and the 24th of August. And so this report from the FT definitely triggered a pretty significant international reaction. We saw a number of different Western analysts that tended to think that China is um, developing a new nuclear weapon delivery system or otherwise potentially a reusable space vehicle that could itself be applicable for weapons. And so I, we read an article by uh, James Acton of the Carnegie Institute, who noted that he suspects that, quote, China is following the Soviet Union's lead in developing a so-called FOBs, but I can't rule out the possibility that China is developing a space plane like the X-37B, end quote. And so overall, the Western reaction from a military perspective was primarily calls for increased investment into missile defense systems, with the U.S. current ground-based mid-course defense system being des designed pretty much to intercept North Korean ICBMs rather than anything like this. 
And finally, for their part, the Chinese foreign ministry denied reports of China launching a hypersonic missile, with spokesperson Zhao Lijian uh, claiming that China had done a routine test of a space vehicle to verify technologies of spacecraft reusability, and that the test would have great significance for reducing the cost of flights to space, and also uh, as part of the peaceful use of space for humanity. And according to Dr. Grego in the earlier webinar that I mentioned, um, the test of a reusable space technology is consistent description with base with the same basic technology of um, of a FOBS and a hypersonic glide vehicle, basically having something that can put something into space, bring it back down in a controlled and maneuverable way. And finally, I would point out it's worth mentioning that a couple of other Chinese media sources didn't really even deny the test. And if anything, they kind of seem to take a little bit of pride in the extent to which the Western media and the Western um, military establishment was kind of concerned about Chinese technology and the rapid advancement thereof. Uh, and so finally, finally, last point on this, I would mention that, uh, interestingly, the week ended with the U.S. Navy and Army conducting a joint hypersonic missile test on the 20th of October, uh, which the U.S. Navy characterized as, quote, a vital step in the development of a Navy-designed common hypersonic missile consisting of a common hypersonic glide body and a booster. So yeah, a lot of a uh, lot of doomsday related things happening in terms of hypersonic glide vehicles. Anything to add from your side, John, or shall we go into the Space Exploration Expo forum? I don't really have anything else to add except that there was just just so much hype on this uh, on this uh, topic. I think this week with claims in the Financial Times uh, that this uh, experiment defied the laws of physics. Um, or shocked, deeply shocked the U.S. officials. I do doubt that any of those two things happened. Um, but yeah, let's let's move on to our last piece of news this week, which is uh, on deep space exploration. China's 338th Engineering and Technology Forum took place from October the 17th to October the 19th in the southern Chinese city of Shenzhen. And this is an event that takes place on a regular basis. It's usually on various science topics. And the 338th edition, you probably guessed it, uh, was linked to space. And this is why we're mentioning it in the Dongfang Hour. There were a lot of interesting bits and pieces that were uh, announced or discussed. And more specifically, the 338th edition of this event was named the Deep Space Exploration, Science and Technology and Application Forum. And among the participants were, for example, the Chinese Academy of Engineering, CNSA, so the Chinese uh, Space Agency. We have CLEP, so basically the people that are in charge of the lunar and the Martian missions. We have CASC, China's main space contractor, and there were also other representatives from the municipal government of the city of Shenzhen, also the Harbin Institute of Technology, Shenzhen campus, etc., etc. And some of the interesting bits of pieces that came to us was from the keynote speeches from October the 18th, which were broadcast live on the internet, which is absolutely fantastic. Let's just briefly recap some of the main points. I think first of all, by listening to the presentations, you realize how serious China is about establishing a permanent lunar base in the coming years, following the ILRS roadmap that they had announced in June 2021. So for viewers who aren't that familiar with what the ILRS is, just a quick reminder, ILRS stands for the International Lunar Research Station. This is a project that's co-led by Russia and China, and the ILRS would have three phases. You have reconnaissance phase, basically during the 2020s, which would aim at performing verification tests for key technologies 
uh, required for a permanent station. Then you have a construction phase between 2030 and 2035 to establish surface infrastructure for energy, communication, and transportation purposes. And finally, you have a utilization phase after 2035 with the establishment of a larger scale presence, a focus on lunar research and exploration, and a regular presence of astronauts in the station. And so among the keynote presentations that were related to this topic was one fascinating one by Guo Lin Li, which is a researcher at the Institute uh, 508 of CAST, the Chinese Academy of Space Technology, which is an institute that's deeply involved in the design of China's deep space exploration systems. And so Guo Lin Li's presentation and research focused on lunar ISRU in situ resources utilization. Basically, what this means is lifting off the land and using as much as possible lunar resources rather than shipping everything from Earth. And more specifically, her keynote speech focused on how to harvest ice on the moon, which is a major resource that can be used to produce oxygen and hydrogen, and which are necessary for a sustainable presence of life, but also extremely useful as rocket fuel. And without going into too much detail in the presentation, um, it went over the problems of accessibility of the ice in the permanently shaded regions of the South Pole. Uh, there were also discussions on the methods to melt and to use the ice through chemical, solar, and mechanical means, also transportation of this ice, purification, and exploitation. Another way to harvest oxygen on the moon this time that was discussed during the presentation was through the processing of lunar regolith or lunar dust. And this is a resource that's abundant on the surface of the moon. It's much more accessible than, uh, you know, the, the South Pole regions. And it contains oxygen, notably under the form of metal oxides. And this is where it gets most interesting, I think. You can feel through the keynote um, presentations of this forum that Chinese scientists are very impressed by NASA's MOXIE oxygen prediction experiment on Mars, currently on board the Perseverance rover, and that China is very keen to get started on their own ISRU experiments themselves. And I think the scoop here is that Guo Lin Li stated that China should not fall behind, obviously, and she proposed an oxygen extraction experiment on an upcoming Chang'e lunar spacecraft using lunar regolith and employing a heating process, turning the various oxides contained in the regolith into oxygen. And she also mentioned that the secondary components that were produced by this extraction could be used as potentially construction material as shown by various tests that were done by her institute. And so while this mission still really seems at the state of a proposal, nothing is confirmed yet, it seems very likely that honestly China in the coming years with upcoming Chang'e missions will be putting a very big priority on this kind of ISRU missions. And this is because um, other space powers such as ESA, NASA and Russia have all multiple ISRU missions that are planned. And this adds presumably additional pressure on China to also um, have their own experience and not fall behind as was put by Guo Linli. So without wanting to go too much into this rabbit hole of the presentation, I want to cover quickly some of the other discussions that we had uh, on October the 18th. We had Beihang University present research on the design of synthetic lunar regolith on Earth and comparing it with actual samples that were returned from the moon and also the 3D printing properties of this synthetic lunar regolith. There was also a collaborative study between CASC and Hunan University on the establishment of a sustainable power network and energy storage strategy on the moon. And finally, we had a study from Shenzhen University on Earth observation with lunar-based instruments. And on a side note, I think it's fairly easy to realize here that many of these studies are explicitly in the scope of the five ILRS objectives stated in the ILRS handbook co-published by China and Russia, and notably the ILRS Objective 3 and Objective 5 that I'll put up here on the video. 
Finally, at this forum, there was also a lot of talk about Mars. I know there was one presentation talking about the Mars opposition that was, uh, you know, that that was just over a couple of days ago, and during which Mars, the Sun, and the Earth were aligned, and so the Sun basically blocked and interfered with any Mars Earth signals. And this is this was why uh, Jurong was intentionally powered down uh, during a couple of weeks in late September and early October. Another part of this presentation further detailed China's future Mars sample return mission, which would seemingly take place around 2030 and would consist in a succession of two launches. We'd have one rocket would send a lander in an ascent vehicle that would perform the sample extraction, and you'd have a separate launch of a return vehicle, and which would dock with the ascent vehicle at some point. So really some pretty cool stuff. Now we are still waiting for more details before uh, presenting anything uh additional on on the Dongfang Hour. And finally, uh, one last very interesting keynote was by the Institute of Space Sciences of Shandong University. They revealed that they were working on a method of extracting oxygen from the carbon dioxide on Mars called glow discharge. And this method apparently is a different method from the one that's used by MOXIE on NASA's Perseverance rover. And as far as I understood from the presentation, MOXIE splits CO2, so carbon dioxide into carbon monoxide and oxygen, and this is to avoid the formation of carbon residue. On the other hand, the, the method that's favored by the Chinese glow discharge produces carbon and oxygen. And according to the researcher of Shandong University, Wu Zhongchen, Glow discharge has the advantage of requiring less power. It doesn't need the high thermal conditions of MOXIE. And it is also much more adapted in working in a low pressure environment. And this is the case when you are in the atmosphere of Mars. And finally, I'd say, and finally, to to wrap this up, I'd add that glow discharge is probably a method, despite all the, you know, all the positives that were mentioned during this presentation, I guess it's something that still needs a little bit more validation and needs to be field proven before I know confirming that it is really above the method that's used by Moxie. But definitely, I, I mean, through all these presentations, it is very clear that China is very serious about its lunar and its Mars exploration programs. I guess that's to uh, the benefit to all uh, space enthusiasts that are watching these projects with uh, with a lot of attention. Holy cow, synthetic regolith. What a time to be alive when we are talking about making synthetic regolith on Earth for, uh, for research purposes. That's pretty fascinating stuff. Um, nothing else from my side on, uh, <clears throat> on the Space Exploration Forum. Um, so, John, unless you have anything else... Uh, all good? I'm all good. Excellent. Well then, this has been another episode of the Dongfang Hour, China Space News Roundup. This for the week of the 18th to 24th of October, 2021. I'm Blaine Curcio, joined as always by my co-host, Jean Deville. And just a small reminder, if you have not checked out our website or newsletter, you can check it out at dongfanghour.com and newsletter.dongfanghour.com, respectively. We've got a lot more content in both places. And that's about all for me this week. Interesting, interesting times. Hypersonic missiles and synthetic regulators. <laughs> yeah, so good stuff. Uh, see you next time. Thank you very much for watching. Thank you. Thank you.